New Testament reading. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning." So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Hmm. Thanks for bearing with that long scripture reading this morning. Um, next week, we will actually be finishing the book of Ruth, so we'll be reading all of chapter four together. And in doing so, uh, we have called this sermon series, The Gospel from Famine to Harvest showing how God is working through all the different seasons of our lives, how, how he works in us in the depths of our most hardest moments, most traumatic moments, and how he restores us through the grace in Christ. And as, as we've been going through this series together, it's my hope that you see in Ruth and Boaz and Naomi shades of your own story and shades of the story of the people of God through every generation. We, apart from God's grace, are like Naomi, going through to escape the famine on our own terms, only to realize that trying to do it on our own doesn't work, and it leaves us empty, perhaps even bitter and wounded. We, we in faith, are like Ruth, covenanting our lives to God as God himself fills us in keeping the covenant promises. We look to Christ like Boaz, the worthy one who is able to shelter to abundantly pr provide and welcome those who we would never expect to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, the, the sojourner, the stranger, 
the ones that appear most outside of the camp of the people of God. And in Ruth's kindness to Naomi, and in Boaz's kindness to Ruth, as we talked about last week, kindness changes us towards justice, towards restoration, and towards redemption. And so here we are in the, perhaps the most dramatic portion narrative of the book of Ruth, the, in chapter 3. The most popular and perhaps the most misunderstood text in Ruth, both in terms of how Ruth chapter 3 is interpreted and how it's applied. I hate to be the bearer of bad news in this text, but I will not be using this text to explain how and why you should be proposing to your spouse. I will not be saying that this text definitely proves the Sadie Hawkins rule towards relationships or how the Bible even wants you to ask anyone else. In fact, the whole point of chapter 3 has little to do with romance and much more to do with responsibility. What responsibility am I talking about? This is the responsibility of pursuing the harvest that God has provided. Pursuing the harvest that God has provided. As we'll see here today, both Ruth and Boaz will have a choice to make. Choices that require action on their part to carry it out. You see, the harvest isn't something that passively happens to you. It's not like we just sit here while God blesses us. He can do that. But there are moments in our lives where the harvest must be something that we pursue. We must take it. Thus, the narrative here rarely references the Lord's actions. So this is where the bridge of human responsibility and divine sovereignty meet. This is where the rubber meets the road, where theory is put into practice, where, where as the kids say, things just got real. Or if you're risk-adverse, where the real stress comes into play. So before we begin, can we pray together? Father, bless the preaching of your word. Embolden us to pursue the kingdom of God, the harvest you have prepared for us, to pursue it with fervor, with joy, with anticipation. May you bless the teacher now. May your spirit speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, how do we pursue the harvest? As Ruth and Naomi have been blessed by the Lord, they have been filled now with a renewed hope from the kindness that we talked about last week. The, the provision of hunger has been taken care of. And in chapter 2, Naomi had found out that Ruth had been given an extra measure of protection by Boaz, a, a relative that could carry them out of the estate of poverty and almost certain death to life. And she begins to be filled with hope. And like any mother-in-law filled with hope, she wants her daughter to get married. So with this pursuit of the harvest comes challenges, difficulties. And as we'll see, it's not something that comes easily or comes without its own set of worries and fears. So today we'll be examining three ways in which we pursue the harvest. Number one, we pursue the harvest in the face of risk. Number two, we pursue the harvest in the face of anxiety. And three, we pursue the harvest with hopeful expectation. So, let's begin with pursuing the harvest in the face of risk. Um, where we are in chapter 3 is that both Ruth, Roaz, and Naomi have been going through the harvest of the barley in Boaz's field. And although Ruth's first day is quite a spectacular one, she brings home six ephahs of, 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 of barley, which is just a huge amount, right? Filled with the kindness of Boaz to her. Notice that their relationship at the end of chapter 2 doesn't change for the end of the entire harvest, an almost eight-week period. See, the categories of their relationship are just still 
Boaz, the field owner, and Ruth, the servant who also just happened to be a sojourner Moabite. So for this eight-week, six to eight-week period at the end of the harvest happens, all the parties involved have remained in the same place. And so Naomi, who has been at this point filled with great hope about the future of Ruth, decides to risk something that on the surface sounds absolutely crazy. In fact, so much that biblical scholarship continues to argue over what Naomi is really asking Ruth to do here. Is Naomi asking Ruth to be too risky? Not risky enough? Maybe something else. Those three interpretations have dominated uh, the, the sort of interpretation of this chapter of Ruth. So we'll explore these three interpretations here now. Uh, so one popular interpretation is that Ruth was being told here by Naomi to do something that would have been way too risky, risque almost, in fact, to coin a term, scandalously. Not just in the Old Testament, but, but in any time of biblical history. Uh, there's this one stream of interpretation that thought that Ruth was being asked to dress up provocatively uh, to seduce Boaz at night. So they proof text Genesis 19, where Lot's daughters got dad drunk on wine so they can take advantage of him. And so here we go. Ruth is being asked by Naomi to do the exact same thing and wait and see how Boaz responds. Uh, proponents of this interpretation usually parallel this text and the phraseology with Ezekiel 16, 9 through 12. So we'll put that on the screen. Uh, it's this idea that the prophet Ezekiel is borrowing language from Ruth to demonstrate Israel being adorned by God. So those first couple of verses, right, where it talks about washing, to anoint yourself, to being clothed, right? Ezekiel, they say, is borrowing from Ruth. And Ezekiel is calling Israel um, an unfaithful wife, uh, to use a very kind phraseology. Ezekiel uses actually a lot worse phrase. <laughs> Naomi is essentially asking in her request to Ruth in this manner, they argue that Ruth must seduce Boaz to be her wife. Um, as you can see by my smile, I, I, I just don't buy it. <laughs> there are numerous problems with this interpretation, more than I can get into. The idea that Ruth is being set up as a noble woman of the covenant in the first two chapters, and then all of a sudden decides to go real housewives of Jerusalem, just, or Bethlehem, just makes no narrative sense. Uh, if this were a TV show, right, like, this would be a total jumping the shark of the character of Ruth. Uh, there is no way that this request from Naomi means this. Also, the idea that Boaz, a, a worthy man, would have ever received such an advance is, is actually ridiculous. As though Boaz is just sort of this simpleton who sees a beautifully dressed woman and says, okay, sure. Uh, character matters to Boaz, as we've seen and talked about. Uh, Boaz has much more honor and depth. He is the anti-Gideon figure, as we talked about in the past. He is the worthy man that lives up to the title of that role. So uh, this interpretation, to badly quote the Mandalorian, this risk is not the way, okay? Uh, the second interpretation is no risk. Uh, this is what I like to call the Christian mingle version of Naomi's risk. It doesn't require any risk at all. This version says, Naomi realizes that Ruth needs to place herself passively in Boaz's way and just sort of sit there until Boaz mans up and asks her out. 
Uh, this is a dominant interpretation. This was uh, the version that was taught to me growing up. You know, the idea, oh, Ruth is not allowed to take initiative. All the initiative in the relationship must come from the man. But the woman can get in the way and look cute to the guy who will eventually do something about it, right? Or as my wife told me growing up, she heard this interpretation, women just need to Ruth it with guys, right? And that's sort of the idea. Um, the problem with that interpretation is that it makes it seem like there's no risk, risk to Ruth at all here. But the text clearly states that Ruth is to take the first step. The initiation by uncovering Boaz's feet and lying down. You see, Naomi, in other words, isn't just asking for Ruth to get in Boaz's way. She's asking Ruth to risk her life by placing herself in a situation where if Boaz does not take kindly to Ruth's uncovering, if Boaz is embarrassed or views the advance the wrong way, it could mean that Ruth loses everything. The Christian mingle version of the interpretation dampens the real risk that Naomi is asking Ruth to take. Ruth's life is at stake. And so it can't just mean that Ruth is just to sit there passively and wait for Boaz to say something. So what are we left with here? This third interpretation, which I think is, is the most faithful and accurate. We are left with where I believe is where most biblical commentators land on is that the real risk involves, maintains the dignity of Ruth's character. Naomi's heart has been changed by the said kindness of Ruth. She's ready for Ruth to go and find security outside of her responsibility to Naomi. And so how is Ruth going to do this? By washing, by anointing her body, which by the way, if you look at those phrases, it was not just the standard practice just for women, but for men also. Uh, especially for those who worked in the fields. Uh, the, the oil isn't some sort of special perfume that you see in like those commercials. It was just merely olive oil that was fragrant. That was, that was fragrance. And men and women did this all the time. And she was just told to simply put on her cloak. Now, the reason why the cloak is significant is this. You see, the signifier that Ruth was a widow was usually identified with something what's called a widow's garment. It would have been something that she would have worn for a period of time of mourning. It was an outward sign to the community that she is not ready to move forward, that she is still in the stage of grief. We see the same phrasing echoed in David's life after he grieves the loss of his first child. So rather than Ezekiel being the proof text of why we come to this interpretation, let's look at 2 Samuel 12, 20. This is what David does after he has lost his first child. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed into his clothes. The same word for cloak in Ruth. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went into his own house, and when he asked, they set foot before him, and he ate. You see, David here in 2 Samuel, he is borrowing language from Ruth in talking about what Ruth's restoration would look like. So when Naomi is saying, go put on your cloak, she is saying to Ruth to signify, you are no longer a widow and sends the message through your, the way that you wear this cloak, which was not in any way her best clothes. It was just simply a cloak that covered her from head to toe. Through the removal of your widow's garment, by laying at Boaz's feet, you're saying to Boaz, you are ready to move on with your life and move forward with your life with hopefully him. Now this is quite the risk that Naomi is asking Ruth to take. The winnowing floor 
at night is a dangerous place to be. The reason why Boaz lies down there to protect his crops is because thieves would normally come in nighttime to take away the harvest. If the thieves didn't get to roof at night, perhaps maybe Boaz would interpret her as an enemy. And so the issue of the message that Ruth is sending to Boaz in this moment, moment is that Boaz could easily misinterpret this gesture and demand that Ruth and Naomi be cast out of the community that Boaz's protection had given. Now, why would Naomi ask this level of risk for Ruth? See, because Naomi understands, as most parents do, that Ruth and Boaz's relationship would never progress unless something drastic were to come about. In Boaz's field, day by day, Ruth would just always be Ruth the Moabite. In the days working, while she may demonstrate noble characteristics, Boaz would see the widow's garment and recognize that she is still in grieving. Boaz, being a noble, worthy man, would respect Ruth's decision to covenant with Naomi and remain with her mother-in-law. But the harvest that Naomi knew awaited Ruth of security for Ruth could only happen if Ruth was willing to place herself in a situation where Boaz and Ruth could be alone in the context outside of working in the field. Boaz needed to take the jump in order that her life could move forward and trust in the character of Boaz that Boaz would not cast her off. See, Naomi knew in an age and society where women could only be protected through marriage, that Ruth would only be seen as a Moabite to be pitied and nothing more. Ruth was, in essence, as good as dead if she just simply stayed put. Sure, maybe perhaps fed, but still without the real security of life. And if Naomi passed away, then Ruth would be in an awful position in her society. It would only be seen as something that she could get out of if Ruth takes the leap. Now, this is instructive for all of us, not just simply as marriage advice, as so often this chapter of Scripture is used for, but for all of us when we consider in our own lives regarding the risks that God is calling us to take. When the Christian moves from being the metaphorical, you know, Ruth the Moabite to a covenant family member, there is a risk that calls the Christian to give up their lives to the possibility of the danger that lies before us. Now, we don't do this foolishly. Naomi, Naomi certainly isn't asking Ruth to be foolish in her presentation and approach, but nevertheless, these risks are present everywhere around us. Uh, God might be asking you to share your faith with a person you've been building up a relationship with. And there are risks associated with that. There's a good chance you would be rejected, that the relationship of your friendship could change. God might be calling you into a new vocation or a new phase of life, placing you out of the place of comfort, and the risk you take means that you've got to take all that you've held on to for security and hope and place it back in His hands. The risks that we take might be the hardest things that we can ever imagine, but that is part of the Christian faith. It's walking in the pathway of our Savior. I mean, take a look at the risk that Christ took in His pursuit of the harvest for us. Think of the dangers that He daily endured in His travels, in boats and storms, 
in hostile crowds that would surround him, the people who wished to stone him, the ones who would crucify him. Jesus' pursuit of the harvest for the people of God led him often in positions of greatest vulnerability, moments of scarcity surrounding him at all times. In this way, we see Naomi's challenge to Ruth as an echo of the redemptive covenant plan of God the Father to God the Son, that he must go and risk his life for the sake of the world that he loves. And not just risk it as we know with Jesus, but lay down his life. And so Ruth goes, and she goes and takes this huge Ruth with Boaz, and she goes even one step further, going beyond what Naomi asked her to do. You see, rather than just simply wake up Boaz and wait for him to tell her what to do, Ruth pursues the harvest and makes a bold declaration. The, co- the, co- uh, the conventions of her age are, are, are different than, than what Ruth proclaims here. She tells Boaz, after Boaz asks, who's there? And she says, it's me, it's Ruth. Not Ruth the Moabite, as the text earlier had been classifying her. Not Ruth the outsider, not Ruth the widow, not Ruth the daughter of Naomi, just simply Ruth. This omission is intentional. It's more clear when we see that Ruth is explicitly telling Boaz, you remember, by the way, Boaz, when you said that the Lord would spread his wings to protect our family and care for us in chapter two? Uh, Yeah, I want you to answer that prayer that you've made for us. I want you to marry me, for you are a redeemer. Ruth goes into this risk, pursues it with boldness. She goes one step further. But as we are about to find out, it's not with its own set of anxieties. And this leads us to our second point, uh, the pursuit of the harvest in the face of anxiety. Now, what do I mean by the word anxiety? Um, Textbook medical definition, the American Psychological Association. Uh, Anxiety is the emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes. Uh, By most research today, the day and age we live in is Uh, a state where anxiety has reached its largest spread ever in our world. Biblically, in uh, your ESV Bible, the word anxious appears 24 times, fear a whopping 437 times, dismay 51 times, and distress 91 times, all conveying the sense of this word anxiousness or anxiety. Uh, I understand that so many of us here, including myself, uh, who have struggled with this in some form of our lives, uh, anxiety is an uncomfortable word. And the question that we, maybe some of us have asked in our walk with God is, is how can we pursue the harvest in which God is calling us to if we feel anxious, if we feel fearful? fearful? Uh, the anxiety goes two ways here in our story with both Ruth and Boaz. We first see it revealed in Boaz about the insecurities he has about himself and Ruth's requests. Boag's anxiety is over how he sees himself. He realizes that Ruth could have gone for anybody in the town of Bethlehem. By default, younger men would have had greater prospects. Younger men would have had greater earnings potential. Uh, they would have probably looked a lot better, right? And by default, younger men could also be married for, for, for in, in a state where Ruth could relate to, to them more easily. When Boaz says in this text that you could have gone after young men poor or rich, he's signaling that Ruth could have married for passion 
in poverty, or married for rich in practicality. You know, the two princes song, right? Like, I think you're familiar with that. Ruth had all these choices available to her, and yet Boaz is like, why would you choose me? Which reveals that Boaz was probably older than what would have been expected for him to get married at. Probably at this stage of life, since he was a single field owner, he probably wasn't this great-looking, dashing young man. And he thinks, you know, Ruth, she could have married up. She could do way better than me. What's even more telling is that Boaz considers this marriage proposal greater than Ruth leaving her hometown and risking her life to live with Naomi. Uh, He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Uh, Do you know how hopeless you have to view yourself to say that marrying you is far greater than being a refugee? Right? Boaz here is dealing with anxiety about himself that Ruth, in her risk, has changed his heart. There's another component here, though, about Ruth and her anxiousness. Boaz sees Ruth's fear, and he says, do not fear. He wants her to be affirmed that her risk will be rewarded. He reaches out to her and gives her a name, signaling Ruth's changed status within the community. He says, everyone knows, by the way, just in case you have any doubts, uh, you are a worthy woman. This is the same title that Boaz was given as a worthy man in chapter 2. So in other words, the worthy man is saying, I I know that this is very scary for you right now, and I know that you're telling yourself a ton of different stories about who you are and who you think you, you have become as a sojourner, as a refugee, as a Moabite, but you are worthy. See, both Boaz and Ruth have an anxiety of who they are and just even what they're doing in this moment. And both of them, instead of making it a thing that that helps them flee away from where God wants them to be, they use it as an opportunity to pursue the Lord's harvest for their lives, risking it not because of their anxieties, but in spite of them. Now, I want to highlight this word because I'm convinced that many of us have grown up with the teaching, if you've grown up in the church, that anxiety is somehow this grave sin. And whether or not it was, wasn't taught correctly, or even for myself, if I just wasn't listening, uh, I bought the lie myself. I believe that any experience of anxiety must mean that, oh, I must, surely I don't trust God. I'm weak. My faith is weak. I just, I just need to repent. Maybe you've been clobbered over the head with verses, like in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything in your life. Or Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, present your request to God. Um, and the conclusion that one might draw from those two sort of clobber verses is that if you are anxious about anything at all, then, oh my gosh, you're sinning against a holy God. You have failed. So stop being anxious, is the rallying Have you ever by the way, try to tell someone who is anxious to stop being anxious, right? What is the end net result of that? They become more anxious. How does it usually go? They, they become even more fearful. Why? Because of self-condemnation. Maybe there's something more to Matthew 6 and Philippians 4 that we have missed. Something that gives us perspective on what's happening here with Ruth and with Boaz. Uh, Curtis Chang is a name that you may not be familiar with. Um, he would be known in 
the Asian American community, and particularly in the Korean American community, as one of the good ones. And what do I mean by this? Curtis Chang was a distinguished Harvard graduate with honors, a successful owner of his own consulting firm, and a faithful Christian believer and pastor. So Curtis Chang essentially did everything that a typical immigrant Asian family would expect of their second-generation child to do. Go to Harvard, make tons of money, and love Jesus in that order, okay? All right? Um, So Curtis took over one of the most successful churches in Silicon Valley. He guaranteed a lifetime of ministry success and financial stability. But what happened next in his life is something that no one could have expected. He suffered debilitating anxiety during his tenure as a senior pastor there. He had to abruptly resign in shame and disgrace over his anxiety. And suddenly, one of the good ones became a quote-unquote failure. As Curtis processed his experience during that period of time and the anxiety that had gripped him all of his life, he started searching the scriptures, and he was surprised by what he saw. Uh, In his excellent book, I I want all of you, if you read just one book, if you're struggling with this issue, uh, The Anxiety Opportunity is the book. He saw that rather than the experience of anxiety itself as, as being a sin, he saw that anxiety is actually an opportunity. Anxiety is an opportunity. Either, yes, to sin, or the opportunity to turn to Christ. It's an opportunity to go to the God who is waiting to be with us in our greatest fears, our insecurities and doubts, and give us, just like Ruth and Boaz do for each other in this text, gives us identities that we can never imagine that we could have as people who struggle with anxiousness. Whereas anxiety hijacks our thoughts about the worst possibilities that can ensue, looking to Christ reminds us that there is nothing that the world can ultimately do to separate us from Him. Whereas anxiety hijacks our bodies into this fight response or this flight response, turning to Christ brings us not to fight or flight, but faith that goes beyond those responses. Whereas anxiety causes us to falsely believe that we cannot be loved for who we are, that Christ surely could not love us in our anxiety, turning to Christ reminds us that his love is greater than all of our fears. More poignantly, look at the life of Jesus himself. The cross points us to a Jesus who also dealt with anxiousness. What does Isaiah say that Jesus is? He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief to the point of blood dripping down his face as he was praying. A a medical state that, that demonstrates someone who is in extreme anxiety. His soul was troubled, the scripture said, and yet without sin. Friends, if the perfect sinless Savior struggled with anxiety, then it reminds us that Matthew 6 and Philippians 4 isn't about anxiety as sin in and of itself, but the heart issues of who we bring our anxieties to. Your anxiety and fear and insecurities about the future are real. And rather than just sort of um, in some circles, you're being told as a Christian, oh, just fake it. Wipe them away. Hide them under a rug. Just be joyful. Rather than condemn yourself, having it. Christ is saying, I'm here. 
take your fears to me. I understand. I've been right where you are. For Ruth and Boaz, they saw their insecurities and anxieties were not blockers for them to pursue God's grace, but rather the opportunity that led them to trust in the Lord's blessing to go deeper and further than before. They do not have it all together to follow and pursue God's harvest, and neither do we. As Curtis Chang writes in his book, for the followers of Jesus, anxiety reduction is not the primary goal of life. Our true goal is being transformed to the body of Christ's glory. So how do we know that Boaz is still anxious? It's right after Boaz's speech to Ruth. Ruth. Boaz is worried that Ruth's presence at night would be viewed as scandalous. So he asks her to stay with him until morning and then goes even further to protect her reputation by giving her a gift to take home, an amount of barley that she can carry back to Naomi. Uh, this is a way to protect uh, both of their reputations that no one would sort of see their encounter in the evening as scandalous or even questionable. Boaz's anxiety in this case protected both of their reputations. Boaz wants to keep on pursuing Ruth and what the Lord would have for them. And that is why, that, that, that is why ultimately, even though we pursue the harvest with risk and, and anxiety, pursuing the harvest should lead us to hopeful expectation. Our final point here today. You see, Boaz's gift was more than just a mere protective cover story for Ruth. It was a gift that was also the hope of a promise. According to commentators in ancient Jewish tradition, a gift was often given by the groom at a time of betrothal as a promise to prepare for the wedding in good faith. It was the promise that the fiancé would be taken care of in the meantime. So Boaz is more than just giving Barley home as a good cover story, more than just preventing the Jerusalem TMZ from breaking the news. It was a gift to Naomi to signify that Naomi's gamble had paid off, that now Ruth was fully in the care of Boaz completely. There's another uh, signal here that I want to highlight about the hopeful expectation that comes when we pursue the harvest. Boaz says to Ruth this phrase, Look at these verses here. You must not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, that phrase is quite intentional by the author of Ruth. Do you remember the beginning of Ruth in our time with it? Look at Ruth 121. What does Naomi say about herself? The story that she tells herself, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So what is Boaz saying to Ruth and to Naomi? Naomi, in pursuing the harvest, this symbol here is that you will never be empty-handed again. You will be cared for. You will be provided. You will be loved. Pursuing the harvest of the Lord has led to a fullness that Naomi, at the beginning of our story, could never even imagine herself having. And what does this symbol of expectful hopefulness do for Naomi? It leads her to give hope to Ruth. It's contagious. Like has said kindness, right? It enriches the people of God to see that as we encourage one another, we link ourselves not to despair or discouragement, but in mutual care and love for one another that makes us believe again once more. 
In other words, the posture that we have as a church, as the people of God, is not one looking at each other, finding ways to slam the law on each other and calling it accountability, but rather showing kindness to each other, the hopeful expectation of who we could be in Christ and in love that changes us. Church, I know that a sermon talking about risk-taking, fighting through anxiety, and expectful waiting on the Lord to do great and wonderful things sounds like the kind of things that a crushing optimist like myself would say. And maybe some of you here are really waiting to bring me down to earth. Come on, pastor. Do you know what our faith looks like right now? Do you know what Christianity in America looks like? Do you know what my own life looks like? How could the gospel really give us all of that? And I want to say to you, this is the story in the history of the church. This is the story in history of every missions work that has ever been accomplished. This is the story of every page in Scripture that when we pursue the will of God for us, that when we seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we will find ourselves in beautiful moments of risk, of anxiety, but ultimately a wonder and a hopeful awe of what will God do next. As many of you know, this week, um, just one of my theological heroes, Dr. Timothy Keller, passed away in glory, leaving an indelible mark on generations of believers. Uh, He, in my opinion, was the C.S. Lewis of our generation, but his story was a most unexpected and even unbelievable one when you examine the details of his life. His story was that he was just simply this normal seminary grad from Gordon-Conwell. He went to Westminster Theological Seminary and was just a simple pastor of a small rural rural congregation in Philadelphia. Uh, That's all Tim Keller's life maybe should have been until the Lord asked him to pursue the harvest and called him to New York City. Now, New York City at the time in the 90s was not a city that everyone was sort of just running to. And in fact, uh, the evangelical church's attitude towards the city, towards New York, as as it can be today, is, oh, the church surely can't thrive in the city. It's too godless. It's too pagan. No one could ever take a theologically, scripturally-based, Christ-centered church and plant it there. Those insecurities and anxieties were for there for Tim and Kathy Keller as they took the leap of faith. But their expected hope they had was a promise that the Lord would build his church. The Lord would pursue the harvest and the church would grow. And it did. Thousands of individuals coming to Christ later, uh, by their own count, 838 churches that were planted out of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And with more on the way, and a lasting legacy, this introverted almost very stoic preacher who didn't have a charismatic look or appearance. He took all the risk that despite that was present in his own anxiety and worry, he expected God to bring the harvest and to bring the kingdom of God to a place where it could not have been believed to have come before. City of Hope. Um, We don't have to be like Tim Keller to leave a lasting legacy nor is that a calling for everyone's life, but I want you to consider what would it look like for you today to pursue the harvest that God has laid before you, 
to do it with risk, to do it in spite of what you're scared of. See, this is the story of Boaz and Ruth, that you would find realizing that the greatest risk you can take in life is to trust that the Lord will provide. The kinsman redeemer is on his way, and we can go forth in faith knowing that Christ is with us. So let's pray together.